Now I'm pleased to introduce Mr. Randall Kennedy. Randall Kennedy is Michael R. Klein, professor at Harvard Law School, where he teaches courses on contracts, criminal law, and the regulation of race relations. He served as a law clerk for Judge J. Skelly Wright of the United States Court of Appeals and for Justice Thurgood Marshall of the United States Supreme Court. Awarded the 1998 Robert F. Kennedy Book Award for Race, Crime, and the Law, Mr. Kennedy writes for a wide range of scholarly and general interest publications. A member of the American Law Institute, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the American Philosophical Association, Mr. Kennedy is also a charter trustee of Princeton University. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Randall Kennedy. Thank you very much for the uh, generous introduction, and I'd like to thank everyone who has uh, made possible this um, wonderful gathering this evening. My uh, assignment is to address the uh, following question. Is Obama erasing the color line? And I take it that the, uh, by color line, I mean all of the sentiments, instincts, habits of mind, structures that wrongly stymie people because of race. So is Obama erasing that baleful aspect of our political culture? Um, my answer is that uh, yes, he is uh, certainly helping in a very important way to erase uh, the color line. The most important thing that he has done and the most impressive thing that he has done is to imagine that he, a black man, could be president of the United States. That was the single most important and impressive thing that uh, he has done simply to close his eyes and to imagine that he could occupy the White House and be the commander-in-chief, be the chief executive, be the voice of the executive branch of the United States government. Why was that such a big deal? I mean, why, you know, what, what, what's, what, what's so grand about a person imagining that they could be that he or she could be president of the United States. Well, it was such a big deal. It was so audacious because of the um, history of the United States, the racial history of the United States. So in the history of the United States, there have been only two popularly elected governors. Deval Patrick, who's now the governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and Douglas Wilder, who was once the governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. In the history of the United States, there have only been three popularly elected United States senators. Those are just two facts. But behind those facts are 
you know, a, a, a very distressing history. A history that includes, before the Civil War, of course, the virtual exclusion of black people in American politics. There may have been one or two black office holders before uh, the Civil War. Um, but when you say one or two, those are the exceptions that prove the rule. The fact of the matter is before the Civil War, black people were virtually excluded. In all areas of the United States, they were virtually excluded from an active role in politics. Uh, after the Civil War, black people, particularly in the South, did emerge for a short period as political actors uh, during Reconstruction. But then after the death of Reconstruction, blacks were largely uh, excluded. Uh, excluded by dent of terror throughout the Deep South. Excluded by dent of various uh, legal shenanigans. Um, and so, I mean, it was in the, in the mid-1960s, uh, the United States Congress had to pass the Voting Rights Act of 1965 to allow black people to participate without fear of being shot down or without fear of uh, being tripped up through various, uh, again, legal shenanigans. So, you know, for, for, for a black person, given this history, uh, it was quite a remarkable thing to imagine running for president uh, of the United States, and not just running symbolically. Obviously, there had been there had been blacks who had run. Shirley Chisholm had run. Uh, Jesse Jackson had run. Uh, but when they ran, they were running sort of symbolically. They were running to show that a black person could run, and that was important work. But they were not running with any. Uh, with any real hopes of prevailing. That was different in 2007. When Barack Obama ran, he ran with the belief that he could actually win. And um, that's part of his political genius. He glimpsed, he glimpsed this possibility and he constructed a campaign that uh, was, was, was predicated on the notion that it was possible uh, for him uh, to win. I've mentioned the racial obstacles that were part of American history, the antebellum period, uh, the period of the long and terrible period of Jim Crow oppression. But if there were racial obstacles in those, er you know, those eras, but there were racial obstacles as well in uh, 2008. Um, the race line was very present in the election uh, of 2008. It was ambiguous, it was ambiguous. Uh, Barack Obama was in certain ways helped uh, because of his race. One of the things that gave Barack Obama's candidacy its particular drama, one of the things that um, uh, that attracted the fervor that surrounded his campaign. One of the things that you know, made him a political celebrity 
was his blackness. And that was a, itself an extraordinary thing. I mean, for most of American history, uh, one's blackness in terms of electoral politics was simply a detriment. Here was a bit more complicated. He got some benefit from his blackness. On the other hand, in many respects, he also um, had to face a situation in which his blackness was uh, an impediment. In 2008, Barack Obama had to overcome his blackness in order to, uh, in order to prevail. Well, you know, w w why do I say this? I mean, he won. There'd be some people who'd say, gosh, you know, doesn't that show that, uh, uh, you know, his blackness, in fact, was not an impediment? No, it doesn't show that at all. Um, there were, race was an impediment. It wasn't so much of an impediment that it was insuperable. In earlier eras, he wouldn't have had a chance of prevailing. In 2008, it was a bar, but it was a bar that he could overcome and that he successfully overcame. But it was a bar. How do we know this? We know this through various, you know, we know this through questionnaire evidence, we know this through polling. There were still, in 2008, there were millions of Americans who felt perfectly comfortable telling pollsters that no, they would feel uncomfortable voting for a qualified person nominated by their own political party if that person was black. In 2008, there were still millions of Americans. Now, again, it was a lot different than in the 1950s. In the late 1950s, three out of five polled Americans said that they would not vote for a black person even if that person was qualified in some objective way and was a nominee of their own party. So things had changed quite a bit, but there were still, in 2008, millions who were overtly racist. No beating around the bush. And then there were some people, actually, who voted for Obama, but who voted for Obama despite his race. Though the... the um, there were a number of instances in which reporters would, you know, go up to people and, you know, who are you voting for? I'm voting for the nigger. Well, I mean, you know, that itself is, you know, some change, <laughs> right? But the person who made that statement, and, you know, this was not just a one-off. This was, you know, there, there, there were a substantial number of people. I'm voting for the nigger. Oh, I'm voting for Obama. You know, usually I wouldn't, but circumstances extraordinary. Oh, there was a case of you know people, even people who voted for him, were voting for him despite his race. He was you know again Obama overcoming uh, his uh, his race. If one takes a look at the results. People forget sometimes, and you know, in 2008, if it had simply been a white electorate determining who was going to be president of the United States, instead of Barack Obama and Joe Biden occupying the uh, uh, top positions of the executive branch, it would be John McCain and Sarah Palin.
That's well, true. Uh, Barack Obama won enough white votes to ultimately prevail, but he did not win the majority of white voters. Now, quickly, two things. I want to be very careful about this. I am not, I repeat, I am not, I repeat, I am not saying that, you know, people who didn't vote for Barack Obama were, you know, declining to vote for him on racist grounds. I'm not making that assertion. There were all sorts of reasons why some people did not vote for Barack Obama. Uh, you know, some people, you know, for religious reasons, for reasons of partisanship, for ideological reasons. So there are a whole bunch of non-racial reasons why some people did not vote for Barack Obama. I recognize that. I'm not saying that anybody who did not vote for Barack Obama was not voting for him because of race. I am saying, however, that there were some people, hard to quantify, but an appreciable number, who did not vote for him, at least in part uh, because uh, of, uh, of his race. Another qualification, one might say, well, you know, the fact that the white, the, um, you know, white majority did not vote for Barack Obama is no different than the candidacies of John Kerry or other uh, white, uh, or other Democrats running for the presidency. Because in the past 30 years, especially in presidential politics, uh, the Republican Party has been essentially, you know, the white party. Uh, and uh, no matter who was heading the ticket for Democrats. That's true. That's true. Uh, in fact, Barack Obama got more white votes than uh, some of his white Democratic predecessors, and that's an important datum to consider. Having said that, it seems to me it's also worth pointing out, however, however that with respect to presidential politics, race has had something to do with uh, Democratic presidential contenders, whatever their race, has had something to do with them failing to get the majority of white votes. Because especially in presidential politics, the Democratic Party has been viewed uh, negatively in the eyes of a substantial number of whites for reasons that actually have something to do with race. Um, is, is Barack, so my, my claim, Barack Obama had to do a lot of erasing, to get back to the, our title here, is Barack Obama erasing the color line. To get elected president of the United States, he, he had to do some erasing. And he succeeded to a very large, you know, he succeeded. Is Barack Obama having to erase now? Does he face racial obstacles now in seeking to govern? My answer is yes. He's facing all sorts of obstacles, any president does, but uh, Barack Obama has a special burden, the special burden of his uh, blackness. That burden is hard to delineate. One reason that it's hard to delineate is because of something that has happened in American life that's quite laudable. Over the past 50 years in American life, 
um, uh, racial discrimination, racism, has become stigmatized. It's become socially unacceptable. That's a wonderful thing about which all Americans should be very proud. It has been stigmatized. It doesn't mean it's been done away with, but it has been stigmatized. And so when we're talking about racial attitudes now, it's, it's, it's hard to delineate. So um, it's true that at this very moment, it's true that there are still several millions of Americans who will tell pollsters, no, I mean, I'm not going to vote for a black person. But at the level of, you know, with respect to electoral politicians, no serious electoral politician is going to say anything like that. And many, many, many Americans would not say anything like that. Um, but of course, we don't always say what we're thinking. And so the inference I'm making from certain events is that race is a part of the uh, opposition that Obama faces. Well, why do I say this? Well, I'll, I'll give a couple of examples. Um, birtherism. I mean, the, 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 the long-standing, and again, if we're talking about this, this, this wasn't you know, some sort of idiosyncratic belief. There were a substantial number of Americans who had the belief that Barack Obama was not, um, is not, uh, legitimately president of the United States because, you know, the United States Constitution requires that one be a native-born citizen of the United States uh, to be eligible for the presidency. Can I drop a quick footnote here? Uh, with respect to the birtherism issue, you know, the, 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 the usual debate went, you know, uh, uh, he was, you know, he, he was born abroad. No, he was not born abroad. I think far too little attention was paid to the following question. Why should it be the case that one has to be a native-born citizen of the United States to be president of the United States? There are millions of naturalized citizens who live in the United States of America. There are 700 people who were winners of the Medal of Honor who were not born in the United States. We've got people right now in the, wearing the uniform of the armed forces of the United States who are catching bullets, laying down their lives in Arlington Cemetery. We're not born in the United States, but are, are naturalized citizens of the United States. You know, why, sh why should it be the case that one has to have been born here to be eligible to be president? It seems to me that's a, that's a terrible part of our constitutional regime. It is an invidious discrimination right on the face of our constitution, which actually should be revisited and should be straightened out. It should be yanked out. It's terrible. End of footnote. Now, this birtherism, my own sense is that you know, there were probably some people who 
you know, were, you know, really thought that he was born abroad and that this was, a, you know, a, a terrible thing or, you know, fraud or something. My sense, though, is that there were, for, for a, a, a very substantial part of the birtherism opposition was sublimated, sublimated racism. They couldn't say he's illegitimate because he's black. That just wouldn't sound good. So there was something else, you know, birtherism, or another one, someone liked the birtherism. He's a Muslim. I don't like him because he's a Muslim, as if that was a legitimate reason not to like him. But it wasn't racism. And so it's, unfortunately, people feel uh, that it's all right to say that you think it would be illegitimate for a Muslim to be president. That, that's legitimate to say. You can sort of go on TV and say that. But they wouldn't feel comfortable saying, you know, I don't think a black person should be president. I, I, but I think it was sublimated racism. Again, you know, it's, I recognize that in making that claim, you know, is that, is that somewhat speculative? Yeah, it's, it's speculative. I have to, it's speculative. Um, can I, you know, prove it without, you know, a shadow of a doubt? many instances, no. But it resonates as a truth for me, and in question and answer, we can explore that issue. Um, you lie. You lie. So President Obama is giving a, a speech joint uh, session of Congress, a representative from my home state, I'm a South Carolinian, Joe Wilson of South Carolina, is, uh, you know, poses what the president is saying and blurts out, you lie. You know, everyone, most serious political figures, including political figures in his party, the Republican Party, denounced that. There was a debate, though, as to, you know, did race have something to do with it? I think race had something to do with it. Given the history of Joe Wilson, given where he comes from, given that he felt emboldened to holler, you lie, in the middle of a presidential speech, would he have felt so emboldened with a different sort of president before him? Again, I'm, you know, it's... It's a speculation, but my speculation is, no, he wouldn't have. I think that that Barack Obama's blackness just gave a, a little bit more edge, making him feel empowered to be so openly and egregiously rude. More recently, Donald Trump. Donald Trump, first of all, talks about birther, the, the, the birther thing. Then when the president says, okay, well, listen, here's my long-form birth certificate, in the next breath, what does Donald Trump say? How did this guy get into Harvard Law School? <laughs> of course, what, you know, what's he doing doing that? He's, he's pulling on what has been, over the last 30 years, one of the, uh, you know, one of the, one of the great sources of... Uh, of white resentment, you know, affirmative action. That's what he's really sort of 
digging at, you know, how did this guy get into Harvard Law School? No matter that the president was an absolutely outstanding student, president of the Harvard Law Review, but, you know, how did this guy get into Harvard Law School? Those are some of the things which lead me to suggest that, you know, an appreciable part, not, not all, I'm not saying that all opposition to Barack Obama, maybe not even most. I'm, I'm, willing, to, I'm willing to stipulate. Let's suppose it's not most. Let's suppose it's not, you know, that over 50% has to do with partisanship, just pure partisanship, ideological opposition. My only claim is that an appreciable amount, substantial amount of the opposition has to do with, uh, the, uh, with Obama's blackness. How has Obama gone about the job of erasing the color line? He's gone about this job indirectly and carefully. He's gone about it in a very particular way. I call it in my book, The Obama Way. Um, he, does a, he does a complicated... Um, it's a complicated routine um, with respect to blacks. Obama does certain things. The most important thing that Obama has done is to call himself black. Now, you know, that, that, a lot of people sort of take that for granted, but it shouldn't be taken for granted. He could have called himself something else. Right? I mean, his, his mother, his mother's white American. His father was a you know black African. He could he could call himself uh, mixed race. He could call himself multiracial. You know, I guess he could call himself a mulatto. He could call himself a, ri a variety of things. There 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 are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Americans who do. He could have called himself something else, but he chose not to. He chose to call himself black. He chose to call himself either black or African-American. And that turns out to have been a momentous decision on his part, because at least I argue in my book that had he called himself something other than black or African-American, he would not have been able to solidify the overwhelming and fervent black support that helped put him in uh, the White House. When he speaks to black audiences, he knows he knows how to he he knows how to connect. Uh, he knows he's he's you know black colloquialisms, black history. He's very careful to pay homage to the John Lewises, to the Fannie Lou Hamers, to the Rosa Parkses. He has a good sense of the cultural feel of black folk. With respect to whites, what does Barack Obama do? Well, the main thing, the main task with, with whites and other non-blacks has been to assuage their anxieties. And Barack Obama has done a very good job. He's worked very hard. He's worked overtime assuaging the anxieties of uh, white people. Um, he doesn't talk about race a lot. In fact, he only talks about it 
really when he has to. Now, I'm, in a moment, I'm going to assess him. I mean, you know, some people criticize him for this. I'm going to give my own assessment of, but, but now I'm just going to speak descriptively. Barack Obama does not like to talk expressly about racial issues. Uh, and one reason he doesn't, and I think probably the most important reason he doesn't, is because he realizes that if he does, that is going to excite the anxieties, particularly of, you know, the white electorate. Well, you don't, you don't want to talk about race. Sometimes he has to. So, for instance, during the campaign of uh, 2007, 2008, one of his most celebrated speeches was the uh, more perfect, a more perfect union speech in Philadelphia that he gave at the height of the uproar that was created because of his association with, um, with Reverend Jeremiah Wright. And so he goes to Philadelphia and he gives this explanation and he talks to the, to the nation about his views of race. And this is a very celebrated, uh, a very celebrated speech. It has already been anthologized in, you know, in anthologies of the you know, best political speeches in the history of the United States. My own reading of this speech was it was a, it was, it was a very fine speech for the purpose of tampening down an immediate political controversy. But that's all. Um, if one takes a look at that speech, I think it's a perfect illustration of the Obama way of dealing with race, particularly before white audiences. I mean, every, there were a lot, you know, there were millions of Americans that were watching, but I think he was especially attentive to white, the white audience. What does he do in the speech? Well, there are a couple of things that he does. He's very, very even-handed. If there's a paragraph about if there's a paragraph about, you know, white people misbehaving, the next paragraph is going to be about black people misbehaving. I mean, there's almost a formula. I mean, boom, 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 boom. Now, in my view, it's a false even-handedness in the, in the sense that, um, you know, um, the primary victims of racial injustice in the United States have been people of color. It hasn't been sort of even Stephen. But that's not the way he put it. That's not the way he did it. The way he had it was a very formulaic even-handedness. Also, uh, no accusation. So Barack Obama, he's a good writer. He knows, he knows how to put together, he knows what he's doing when he's put, putting together a speech. You take a look at that A More Perfect Union speech, full of the passive voice in certain instances. So, black people were enslaved. They suffered under slavery. They didn't have slave masters, they suffered under slavery. Black people suffered under Jim Crow oppression. I don't know where that Jim Crow oppression came from. I don't know who was benefiting from it. I don't know who was perpetrating it. But, you know, black people suffered under Jim Crow oppression. No accusatory finger. You know, these things happened. Black people were just unlucky. 
But that's, you know, that's part of, that was part of the Obama way. Now, recently, the Obama way has encountered some very sharp criticism. Both his, both his uh, avoidance of grappling with the race question, and when he grapples with it, his, you know, what some people view as his soft peddling of, you know, white racism, or his desire to non-racialize things, put things in a non-racial frame if at all possible. There are critics. Uh, well, we're in Southern California, so, you know, Representative Maxine Waters has, uh, you know, been very vocal of late, criticizing uh, the president for failing to racialize the, uh, the, 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 the plight of the black unemployed and racialize a governmental policy aimed at dealing with the particular problems that blacks face with respect to unemployment or underemployment. Cornell West is, is among the group that's been very critical of uh, the president along these lines. Tavis Smiley, another. Um, in their view, to get back to the, you know, the title of this talk, their view is he has been erasing the color line hard enough, forthrightly enough, loudly enough. Um, and, um, you know, and, and, they're, and they're, 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 they're dis they express disappointment. Uh, they're ex they're, they're, some are expressing exasperation, even anger. My own view of this is just, first of all, a, a descriptive point. The, the great mass of black Americans um, do not, I think, share the view of Maxine Waters or Cornell West or Tavis Smiley. I think the great mass of black Americans um, actually, I think, frankly, share my view. And my view is this. Um, Barack Obama is president of the United States. It's a powerful office. But clearly the, president, the, the powers of the president are limited. We have checks and balances. He's not the only actor on the political landscape. Uh, he, um, the limits of the, pr the, the, the presidency is limited. He is facing an obdurate opposition. Uh, he has on his shoulders the silent, rate, the silent weight of his uh, blackness. He is in a dilemma not of his making. He's in a very tough situation. And um, he has to comport himself according to the discipline of electoral politics. I mean, it's one thing for, you know, somebody to sort of say all that's on their mind and speak candidly if they're not seeking to get elected. 
But I think that if you are an elective, if you're an electoral politician, you have to be keenly aware of public opinion, the public opinion that you find. And I think that Barack Obama does have a keen awareness of public opinion. He has, after all, shown that he has some expertise in reading public opinion. And, you know, um, it's in that light that I'm not, un I'm, not, I'm not uncritical of President Obama. And in question and answer, you know, later on, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to talk about ways in which I'm critical. But my own view is that um, uh, the Obama way of dealing with the race question is probably the most prudent politic way that the uh, political environment allows for now. I say to my friends, my progressive friends, you can push Obama through voicing uh, you know, criticism, push him, but for goodness sakes, don't push him down. Let me conclude with the following. What do I think will be the, uh, the legacy of uh, Barack Obama? I don't think that uh, the um, legacy of Barack Obama will be any transformative policy initiatives with respect to race relations at all. I don't, I don't anticipate that. I'm not anticipating any big moves from Barack Obama on the racial front. I don't think that's going to be his legacy. I think his legacy will be the fact that he, as a black American, climbed the Mount Everest of American politics. I think that is a, that is a fact which will have massive psychological ramifications for at least four years, maybe more, you know, don't know, or at least four years, maybe more, every day people in this country and around the world, when they hear about the President of the United States, see a black man at the White House getting off of Air Force One, getting off the helicopter, and they see uh, soldiers, sharply snap to attention and salute the commander-in-chief. They see a person who is, by anybody's reasonable assessment, very well-spoken, very intelligent, very responsible, uh, leading the United States of America. For at least four years, people day in and day out will have seen that. That has changed the psychology of the United States irrevocably. There are millions of people whose conception of what is possible, whose conception of what the United States is, who counts in America, has been changed because of the ascendancy of Barack Obama. And so although I have criticisms of Barack Obama, I uh, salute him 
and think that in the years to come, his having become president of the United States uh, will be looked upon for the rest of American history as a singular and landmark and positive achievement. Is Barack Obama helping to erase the color line? An emphatic yes. Thank you very much. You spoke mainly about uh, Barack sort of erasing the color line by being elected president. Well, there are a lot of people who uh, didn't really have any trouble with that, whether it would be Sarah Palin or Joe Biden. So <laughs> I'd like to, uh, if you could address uh, the issue more in the primary, in the fact that uh, us progressive Democrats were faced with an issue of a woman versus a black man. <laughs> so that was a much harder issue for us. And uh, uh, if you could make some comments on that, thank you. The campaign between uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, it was absolutely extraordinary. It's, it was, it, you can imagine some teacher or some novelist creating this scenario. I mean, you know, who'd have thunk it? Um, I, uh, in, in, in my book, I talk a, a, a good bit about this, and um, just one aspect of it, there, you know, the, the supporters of Hillary Clinton were, some of them were roundly uh, condemned. I think, for instance, of uh, Gloria Steinem. She wrote an, an op-ed piece in the New York Times in which she expressed her, you know, her, her, her support for, for Hillary Clinton. She said, you know, if Hillary Clinton doesn't get the nomination, I'll support Barack Obama. But, you know, if I had my druthers, I'd rather have Hillary Clinton. And there were some people who really went after her, suggested that she was, you know, racially insensitive, if not worse. And um, in my book, I, uh, and, I'm, and I'm, a, I'm a Barack Obama supporter, uh, but I, uh, I take up for uh, Gloria Steinem and other feminists of various backgrounds who supported uh, Hillary, uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, it seemed to me that it was possible, very possible, to be in favor of, uh, of, of Hillary Clinton on feminist and other grounds and not be properly charged with being, you know, racially insensitive or racist or, or any other bad thing. I think it was a it was a close question. I could easily understand uh, people wanting to, you know, support Hillary Clinton under the under the circumstances. Um, it was a an, just an interesting episode of two yearnings uh, put into conflict. Uh, with one another. You mentioned and spent a lot of time on his style and his manner and his approach. I'm interested in finding out what you think about his response to the obdurate opposition. Mm -hmm. um, storm boots are in order, in my opinion. Okay. Would you comment, please? Sure. Be happy to. Yeah, I mean, you know, some people are accusing the president essentially of being a wimp. And the question is, is that so? 
in my view, it's a, it's a purely, from the point of view, if, if you are a person, and I'm such a person, if you are a person whose frame of evaluation is as follows, um, I think that uh, the presidency is really important, and frankly, I want to have as progressive a president as is possible. Now, so a lot depends on what you think is possible. And from that point of view, the point of view that I just articulated, the question is, you know, what's effective? If putting on, you know, boots, storm boots or whatever, if putting up your dukes, if cussing out the opposition will, you know, do the trick. Cuss! I don't have a problem with that. If, you know, if throwing a punch will do it, throw the punch. But will that be effective? One of the criticisms I have with some of the critics of the president is that they seem so, all too often, in my view, to not be attentive to the practicalities of electoral politics. We're not talking about being, you know, on the street and making yourself feel good, you know, by calling the dozens with somebody. There's an election. And ultimately, at the end of the day, the person who's going to get the last laugh is who won the electoral college. To tell you the truth, and just to push the point a little bit more, it's sort of an ironic thing. Some of the critics of the president portray themselves as, you know, the realistic, tough radicals. I want to say to some of them, you've forgotten what country you live in. It's actually the president of the United States. It's actually Barack Obama who, in the way that he's going, you know, people accuse him of being a wimp. I say, listen. Barack Obama is showing a keen attentiveness to black folk wisdom. That's right. You don't all, you don't, what? what? You're going to say everything that's on your mind? <laughs> the policeman, the white policeman has stopped you wrongly, rudely, and you're going to say everything that's on your mind right then in order to, you know, affirm your masculinity? I'm not going to let this person disrespect me. No, no, no. Sometimes you don't say all that's on your mind. And sometimes the best way of getting to a particular place is not in a straight line. Sometimes you have to take two steps back and two steps to the side to get where you want to go. Now, again, I'm not uncritical of the president. And, so, and I've said this a couple times, so I can imagine somebody saying, well, tell me some criticism. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm happy to. On the racial front and on other fronts, I do not think that the president, I do not think that Barack Obama has done nearly enough to change the ideological landscape of the United States. I and mean, one of the things that the president has is he does have a bully pulpit. 
he has more of an opportunity, being the, the lone voice of the executive branch, he has a better opportunity to speak to the American people than any other person in America. And I don't think he's done that sufficiently. I don't think that he has done that sufficiently. Um, I think that he could, without putting himself in political jeopardy, because I, I don't want him to do stuff that's going to put him in political jeopardy. But I think that without putting himself in political jeopardy, he could do some things. And sometimes I think he has been really quite careless ideologically. So let me go to one that's on my mind, because I'm a lawyer. When he introduced Sonia Sotomayor to the nation as his nominee to be a justice on the Supreme Court, he introduces Sonia Sotomayor. And during his introduction, he says, I wanted to choose a jurist who would apply the law and not make the law. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. That is one of the talking points of the political right. Everybody knows or should know that judges are, in fact, policymakers. Just like Sonia Sotomayor said in a speech that she gave a couple places, one at Burke. I mean, you know, and in fact, in fact, that's well known, should be well known. They are. Supreme Court of the United States is a policy-making branch of government. They, they, you know, they cover it up. <laughs> Journalists help them cover it up. <laughs> Civics courses cover it up. You know, we have our two political branches of government, and then we have this branch that, you know, comes from Mars or something. <laughs> um, Supreme Court of the United States is you know, thoroughly political. That's what, you know, why is there a fight over the nominees? And, you know, if it's, it's, it's thoroughly political. And so, without having to, he gratuitously gave some degree of credence to this notion that law at that level is sharply different from politics, wholly distinguishable from politics, and that what he was after was a you know, judge who would merely apply the law as opposed to making the law. Does the Supreme Court of the United States make the law? Yes, the Supreme Court of the United States makes the law. George Bush, give props to George Bush. I'm ideologically opposed to George Bush, but I'm going to give props to him. George Bush said, when it comes to nominating federal judges, I'm going to nominate good conservatives. He said it. No beating around the bush. No pun intended. <laughs> and by doing that, and by doing that, he, um, he gave validity. He gave... Oh, he, 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 he lifted the morale. He burnished the reputation of conservatism. Barack Obama, you know, he's sort of, you know, afraid to, you know, no, I'm, you know, he does, he, 
I wish that he would. I'm going I'm to nominate liberals. Nothing wrong with being liberal. I wish that, again, I, wish, I think that that's an important thing. I don't think it's you know, just mere symbolism, mere words. Mere words, mere symbolism is important. In fact, the whole point of my talk was to say that with respect to being president of the United States, or some people say, you know, mere symbolism, oftentimes symbolism is substantive. And with respect to symbols, with respect to rhetoric, with respect to the ideological landscape, I don't think that Barack Obama has pushed far enough to you know, um, push, the, push the, uh, the, the, the boundaries over. So I'm critical of, of him on that. I'm also very critical, I'll tell you the truth, the, most cr the place where I'm most critical of Barack Obama act actually is not directly related to the race question. The place where I'm actually most critical of Barack Obama in my book and right now as I speak has to do with the position he's taken with, with uh, uh, discrimination against gays and lesbians. That's the place where I'm most critical. Uh, Barack Obama often talks about how he is the beneficiary of the civil rights revolution. He talks about you know, how he looks back with, with awe and gratitude and admiration for John Lewis when John Lewis was with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Well, you know, I would say to uh, President Obama, that's very good, President Obama. Well, I hope that when you think about John Lewis, you read what John Lewis had to say when he criticized President John F. Kennedy. And he said to John F. Kennedy, black folks are catching hell. You should be with us. And I don't think, I th and I would just, to, you know, sort of bring out the analogy, I don't think that the president has been strong enough and forthright enough in criticizing the, dis the invidious discriminations under which gay people and lesbian people still suffer with respect to federal law and state law. I think it's highly ironic, for instance, with the question of marriage. Here we have a person whose parents I mean, you know, when, when Barack Obama, Obama's parents were married, uh, marriage across the race line was uh, prohibited. It was a felony in many states. In 19, as, late, as late as 1967, it was against the law in 16 states. Yet Barack Obama, with respect to the question of marriage, is basically in the same position as a... Uh, as a person who in the late 1950s was uh, saying he was in favor of, uh, you know, separate but equal, but true equal. Barack Obama says, well, you know, not marriage, everything but true marriage. In my view, that's tantamount to late 1950s, you know, separate but equal. And I think, I think it's a close, I think it's a close question. Again, one might come back to me and say, well, you know, I thought, Kennedy, that you take the position you shouldn't 
you know, take positions that would put him in political jeopardy. On this one, I think actually that he could push more and not be in political jeopardy. In fact, ironically, I think this is an instance in which actually public opinion is out in front of Barack Obama, which is one of the reasons why he's now saying that he's evolving. So I'm not uncritical of President uh, Obama, but in being critical of him, it seems to me one has to be very attentive to the dilemmas that he faces and be very attentive to the role he occupies. He is not, he does not purport to be the leader of a social movement. No, he ain't Martin Luther King Jr. He is an electoral politician who wanted to be president of the United States and now is president of the United States. That's a different role, and it seems to me that one's assessment needs to be different in, you know, in, because of the, the role uh, distinction. You mentioned that uh, racism is stigmatized, and so a lot of people will deny it or, sublim or get, become sublimated. Have we, now that we have a self-admitted black president, have we missed the window to talk about race meaningfully without, uh, but what's the vocabulary to talk about race now where no one will cop to it and, and defensiveness is at an all-time high? And, and they have an excuse. They can say, we now have Barack Obama. What's your problem? We don't have to have the president of the United States leading a discussion. I mean, it, you know, it, it might be nice. Uh, he certainly would give you know, attention to any discussion in which he participates. But um, I hope we don't need him, because if we need him, we are not going to have that discussion, because he isn't going to lead it. And I have to, and again, and I sympathize with him. Race is not a good issue for him. It is a loser for him, which is why his detractors want to mire him in racial discussion. They want him to leap into a racial controversy. They would love that. And, you know, he wants to stay away from it. Now, is that his fault? No. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a deficiency in our political culture. Um, I think it's actually a little bit even worse than what you said because, on the one hand, racism, out-and-out out racism, has been stigmatized, but there's something else that's been stigmatized, and that is making allegations of racism. So one of the reasons why the president, um, when, that, when, when Joe Wilson said, you lie, the former president of the United States, Jimmy Carter, was asked, do you think race has something to do with it? And Jimmy Carter said, oh yeah. I'm a white southerner. I know about this. Race had a lot to do with it. Then reporters go to Barack Obama. Do you think race had something to do with it? Joe Wilson has apologized. I accept his apology. We turn the page. Now, uh, am I mad with Barack Obama for not saying, yeah, I think race had something to do with it? If he had said that, well, how do you know? Prove it to me. Uh, aren't you showing just oversensitivity? Aren't you going around with a big chip on your shoulder? Aren't you playing the race card? Fox News would have had specials 24 hours a day. 
And so he avoided it. Now, you know, I'm not, I'm not mad at him for that. That's a situation. Um, this is, the race, the, the race question is with us. The race question will be with us. It's one of those paradoxical things. It may very well be that the president who is going to, you know, lead us into, who will, you know, invest and, you know, talk a good bit about race, you know, in fact, it may be the case, won't be a black president. And I think that, I think that is likely to be the case. I'd be willing to bet a lot of money that no, Barack Obama will be, not be having a conversation about race. I understand his reasons why, and um, I, you know, I, I accept his reasons why. It's too bad. We ought to change the political culture so that he could, or that a president could, but insofar as it would be politically advantageous and seriously disadvantageous for him to you know, conduct that seminar, my advice to him would be don't conduct that seminar. Uh, following on what you're saying, could he be uh, erasing the color line by ignoring it and instead modeling and being a post-racial executive? Your comments, please. No. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think that's a. I mean, that's you know, that's an interesting um, hypothesis. But my sense is that um, that's. I mean, that, that's. I mean, it, it has the virtue of a generous interpretation of what he's doing. And, you know, and a hopeful, you know, puts a hopeful spin on what's going on. But I don't think that's what he's doing, and I don't think that that's really going to be the, um, the upshot. As I said before, and I won't, you know, take a whole lot of time on it, I, I think that he is um, uh, essentially adapting himself to a political environment that is still very substantially deformed by um, our racial predicament. And one of, the, one of the features of that deformation is, you know, very deep-seated denial. Listen, you all have been very attentive, and uh, thank you very much.